Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. We are currently preaching a series from the book of Genesis called Back Where I Began, the search for meaning in the book of Genesis. It has been said that we can't know what we are supposed to do unless we know what story we are a part of. In the book of Genesis, God tells us in no uncertain terms what story we are a part of. We are a part of His story, a story that He has been writing since the beginning for our good and His glory. We're so glad you've joined us for this podcast, and if you are able, we'd like to invite you to join us in person for worship. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. So if you're new here at Midtown, uh, let me tell you something about us. Um, We don't try to gather together to to think about uh, good and noble things. We come together really to be with Jesus, and he speaks to us through his word. He uses what the Bible calls the foolishness of preaching. So if you're looking for something spectacular up here, let me just let you uh, down easy right now that... Uh, What's happening up here is not what's happening in this room. The Lord promises that when his people get together, he shows up and he works and he does a lot of crazy things. And so even though you may be listening to what I'm preaching on, you really need to be listening to how the Holy Spirit is taking what I'm saying and applying it to your heart. That's where your role comes in. So I hope you have those kind of ears as we dive in. We're in the the book of Genesis and um, today we're actually going to talk about something that we're all very familiar with, and uh, it's work. And let me just, just set the stage and say that all of us have a broken relationship with that right there. Every one of us. And some way or another, your idea of work, your life application of work, how you flesh it out in your life is broken, it's twisted, and there's probably some perversions with it too. Trust me. Like, I remember my very first job, I was 15, and I went to work in our small town for McDonald's. And it wasn't like these beautiful McDonald's that you have now, where they have lots of playgrounds and places to sit. This was like, it was like brutal. It, it, they just had these golden arches from ground to ground, and when you walked in, there was only, an order to, only a place to order and then take the food back to your car. There was no place to sit down. And so if you worked there, you were either cooking, frying, or cleaning. And I was the low guy on the totem pole, and I was the cleaner. And there were a couple things that made this job horrible. One was uh, the two guys that managed it were friends who had retired at the same time from the Marines. And what they had retired from, and I'm not making this stuff up, they, they ran boot camp for the Marines. They were drill sergeants for the Marines. And like, they, they ran this McDonald's like the Marines. And I, I mean, I can tell you that my job was to clean everything in that place. Like, I hovered over the sinks all night long. And I could still hear them shout my name, Drawn, if you got time to lean, you got time to clean. That's still in my head. Nightmares. <laughs> You know, I hated it. We had to wear these polyester uniforms, you know, which were horrible. But what they were capable of doing, which I I still hate, they they absorbed the smell of McDonald's. I smelled like hamburgers my entire high school career. I didn't date a lot, but the dogs in the neighborhood loved me. It was... But here's, here's what I, on the spectrum of work... 
at 15, I hated work. I hated it. In fact, everything I did was for the purpose to do something fun when I got off work. If if I could get a weekend off, man, I'm, I was living for the weekends, man. If somebody would have come in and said, here's what we'll do. We'll give you a lot of cash. Like, let's say you win the lotto, you know, you win the lottery, half a billion dollars or, man, for me, it could have been 10 bucks, but when you're going to win the lottery, what's the first thing you would do? I would say, quit my job because I'm not working anymore. Like work is this horrible waste of life. Like to go to work, to work, and many of us are on that scale. Where when we think about work, we think about something that's horrible and you can't wait till you retire or you don't have to work anymore or you're going to meet that person that's going to benevolently give you, you know, millions. Whatever. Many of us have that kind of view of work. But look around you. There's also, you want to talk about twisted. There's also on this spectrum... There are people in this room that love to work. Like, you can't get enough of it. Like, this is the place where you get life. It's like, I love it. Give me more of it. Like, you're going to succeed. You want success. It's your identity. It's what fills you up. It's what makes your cup full. It's what makes life worth it. You can't go on vacation because when you go on vacation, you got to take work with you because you love it. You can't rest on the weekends because you got to work because you got to get it done. Never rest. Go, 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 go. Always complaining about being exhausted because you have given yourself heart, mind, and soul to loving work. So where are you on the spectrum? Like, where are you on... This scale. And this is where I preach a sermon to say, you know, if you love Jesus, you'll be right there. You know, you kind of hate it, love it. You'll just, you'll be this balanced person, you know. That's not what we're going to talk about today. We're not going to talk about balance. In fact, uh, I don't believe in balance, I believe in a completely different way. So we're going to go to Genesis because what we're going to read this morning is one of the most famous passages from Scripture, and it's right in the first chapter of the entire Bible, and it's declaring something, well, you you need to hear it, all right? So, Lauren, come on up. Y'all know Lauren? She is a professional reader. We brought her in all the way from Green Hills. She's going to be in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, you see the people sitting, yes. Reagan, would you stand up for a moment? Introduce yourself to the room. Reagan's job is he's a Bible hander-outer. That's his, and he loves his job. He gets his identity from it. If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand right now? Please make his existence worthwhile this morning. Is there one person? Yeah, there you go, throwing the Bible. Wow. Jesus is going to come out of that stained glass window. And he is going to put the rock on you, man. I can tell right now. Any more? Thank you, Ray. We unleashed a beast. All right. Okay. Oh, we're good. Okay. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thank you, Lauren. I'm about to pray. What I'm going to pray is that God would expose to you the broken ways you view work, that you'd have the courage to put that down and ask God to revive you. Will you pray with me for that? And I'm not saying like, hey, like in church. I'm like, would you, would you genuinely with me ask God to revive you? So Lord, we come to you, your people called by your name. Would you make your word come alive? And Holy Spirit, would you move in this room in ways that we can't explain because it's the work of your Holy Spirit? Would you take the broken places that we've brought into this room today, those places of disappointment and hurt, the places of shame, the places that we would cover up, the places of pride, Lord, and arrogance, and Father, would you, uh, would you revive us? Let us uh, remember who you are and who we are. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So right here at the beginning, it says uh, in verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Two words, image, rule. Image, rule. Image, ah, you're getting it, all right. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about why right here at the beginning of the Bible, he talks about image and rule. And let me just, here, here's just, this is a bonus, all right? Here's the bonus. I want you to see that before God ever talks about work, before he ever talks about us doing anything, the first thing he talks about is who we are. And if you get nothing out of today, God wants you to know who you are first so that you can bring that to work rather than going to work and demanding work to give you the identity of who you are. See, a lot of times we come to work and we want something from work that work doesn't have the capacity to give us. We do that in marriage too, all the time. We come to marriage with all these monstrous expectations of what this other person is gonna do for me, what it's gonna give me. And all throughout scripture, God always is talking about know who you are before you go and bring that with you. It's why when we baptize kids, you're gonna notice, one of the things I pray over these kids all the time is, Lord, would you give them the courage to know that they are loved rather than being one that goes out of here looking for love? Because those two journeys are very different journeys for children that leave your home. If they leave as one that knows their love and they're secure in that and they know who they are, that is a different path than them leaving the house looking for love. True? We've done both, right? We've all done both. So we don't get our identity from work, but that's really hard. And I'm going to tell you why it's really hard. Because we, we stink at it here. You know why? Because y'all are so good at what you do. I mean, this, y'all are a prosperous community. I mean, and I'm not just talking about financially. 
A lot of you are, but a lot of you are prosperous in your gifts and your talents. I mean, you're good looking, like you drive clean cars, like y'all appear to have it all together. I know you don't, but, and it's scary because we come in here a lot of times and we're preparing, we're comparing our inside to everybody else's outside, which is a tragic mistake for us in church. Because everybody looks so good, you got it all together, you're fit, you're young, you know, all that's going on. And then we compare your outside to our inside. And here's what we do a lot of times is we want to give you identity because of what you do. We want to know, hey, what do you do? Or what have you done? Or what are you about to do? Any of those three categories can immediately give you status here at Midtown. Because we're humans. And we do that. So when we read that our identity is not found in our work, we bring our identity to work, it's really, really, really hard for us. You with me? So let's dive into it. God created us in his image. What does that mean? It's a Hebrew term, zelom Elohim. And this word zelom, it means shadow. It also means image. It means a reflection, like in a mirror, kind of. It also means something else. We'll get to it in just a minute, but does it mean if I'm creating the image of God, does it mean that we have the capacity to reason? Like, you know, like no other creature on the planet, we are like God that we can reason. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I had hamsters in high school. Uh, and I did. They all died off. I was a horrible hamster uh, keeper, all right? But I created these mazes, you know, and I would trick them like you had to find food. And they always seemed to find the food. Like they seemed to be able to reason their environment. So they had something going on. Maybe that's not what makes us especially unique. But maybe it's because we can communicate to one another like I'm doing right now. But I mean, you watch National Geographic and man, they screw up that idea. Like whales are talking to each other now and dolphins are talking to each other now and the bees are now talking to each other. It seems like everybody's doing it. So maybe, maybe that's not it. Well, for us to understand what it really means, we have to go back and we, and we have to do kind of a trip through time into history. So if you hated history, just hang with me, all right? Holy Spirit's got to make this exciting. But remember, the book of Genesis was written by Moses. And if you're, if you're not used to going to church, Moses was the guy that God sent to Egypt. And the reason he sent him to Egypt, because God had a chosen people called the Israelites, the Jews. And the Jews had been taken into captivity and enslaved by the Egyptians. And they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And Moses was sent by God to go to Egypt to look at Pharaoh. And what did he say to Pharaoh? See, so many of you have seen the Disney movie, all right? It's so great. But he, he negotiated against the will of Pharaoh the release, and now all these people, millions of people, are leaving Egypt that were slaves, and they're in the desert, and they're headed to the promised land, but they spent 40 years in the desert. While they were in that desert, Moses wrote, Moses wrote this book, inspired by the Holy Spirit and inspired by God. And who is he writing to? people that had spent their entire lives in slavery. They weren't just in slavery. They were parented by parents that all their parents had ever known was slavery. 
and all their grandparents had ever known was slavery. And their great-grandparents, all they'd known, they were in such a slavery mentality, none of them had ever experienced any kind of freedom apart from Egypt. In fact, some historians would say when the Israelites left Egypt, they were more Egyptian than they were Jewish. They were more entrenched in the idea of, of the Egyptian way of life and their gods than they were even in Judaism. And when Moses is writing this to this slavery, uh, to this group of people that had only known slavery, he was doing something very profound. So much so that if we understand history, when Moses wrote, we were created in the image of God, they knew exactly what he was talking about. See, the Hebrew expression for image, this zelem, basically means three-dimensional statue. Three-dimensional statue. It's one of my professors, Richard Pratt. I'll be quoting him throughout this sermon. Um, brilliant guy, funny, horrible basketball player who thinks he's great at it. All right, but... He said, in many respects, that's what the Bible means when it says we're images of God. It tells us that we're representatives, that we're artistic designs. We are something that has been made, a sort of three-dimensional representation of God. And the reason this is significant, because at the time, uh, the ruler of Egypt was Pharaoh. And what Pharaoh did, and all the Pharaohs before him did, was they created images of themselves, and they scattered it all across Egypt everywhere. They were on the buildings. They were in people's homes. Archaeologists have dug up thousands upon thousands of these small little images of Pharaoh. They were all over the place. In fact, when tax collectors would go to remote villages that Pharaoh had never even been to, and they're collecting taxes, and people say, well, who are you collecting taxes for? They would just point to that big statue in the middle of the square and say, that guy. Oh, that guy. And so they knew exactly what it meant when Moses was saying, we're created, Zelem, Elohim, we are the representation, the statue of God. Richard Pratt. In the ancient Near East society, there was one, sometimes several, but primarily one person who had the title image of God. Can you imagine who that might have been? It was Pharaoh, the emperor. They did it both in Assyria and in Egypt. They would call royalty the likeness of the gods. In fact, in many cultures, they believed that when a pharaoh died, they actually became divine, that they entered into the realm of the divine. So Moses writes that Pharaoh is not the only one that is the image of God, but everyone is the image of God. That was absolutely unbelievable to the Israelites. Everyone is the image of God, not just the kings, not just the noblemen, but me. I'm the likeness of God. Moses was saying to them that every single human being had the value and the worth and deserved the honor of a king and a queen or an emperor. What Moses was declaring to the Israelites is that you are the representation of God here on this earth. You are like ambassadors for a kingdom that you are sons and daughters of. And your father is the high king of heaven, which makes us royalty. Really? In fact, let me tell you how outrageous it is. Have you ever met <clears throat> royalty? 
You did when we started this sermon. When I said, hey, say good morning to somebody. You're like, what What are you talking about? Think about how far we have to go in our imagination to think of ourselves as royalty. But this is what Martin Luther King would said when he was fighting against racism in the 60s. Is he said, we have all been made in the image of God. The nobility of who we are as the created image of God makes us royalty. Have you ever met somebody like that? You have. And what have we been made royal to do? To rule. Image to rule. <clears throat> We're in his image so that we can rule, that we can take dominion. And what does that mean, to take dominion? Or how do we take dominion? Well, we get some clues in the passage. The first clue is everything we hear about God in the first chapter uh, of Genesis is he's creating. He's just creating. He's just stars in the heavens, you know, birds in the fields, like the oceans, the skies. He's just creating like crazy. In fact, he's not just creating what he's creating. The God of the universe is going, oh, that's good. Oh, oh, that's so good. In fact, what we see is this picture of God, an artist. He, he is an artist, and he, he's going on full display. And what is he doing when he displays his artistry? He is spreading his glory everywhere. The glory of what? How beautiful an artist he is. So what does that teach us? Well, look here. <clears throat> Let's go to verse 28. God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. You know what that means? Nobody gets it? The women are talking about it this week. Look at there. First page of the Bible. Yeah. You get sexy. All right, Rihanna. Top that. Okay. <laughs> Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fishes in the seas. Rule over the fish in the seas. <laughs> in the sea. I keep on pluralizing everything. And the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see what he says? Create, 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 create. And he's the only one that can create from nothing. And then he creates us. And what does he do? He blesses us. What? Love each other deeply. And then rule. What do you mean rule? Create. Create. Go be an artist with me. Let your life now be this display of artistry. Let your life do something. What is art? Art, to help you understand, art really is, and we can talk about it, you challenge me, but I'm up here and you're not, so I'm going to give you a definition for art. Art is, is drawing beauty from chaos. Like our artists today, you know, they played these beautiful songs. Uh, they took notes <clears throat> that to me is just a pile of notes. And out of those notes were handcrafted notes and tunes and words to produce art. And a painter does the same thing. When there's a, when there's a pile of paint, they're pulling out of that paint to craft something that's, that's beautiful, like Chagall on the back wall. And that was beautiful, that poetry right there. He blesses us to create. And here's what's crazy. Have you ever been to uh, like Gaylord, the hotel, and you walk in and the botanical gardens are all over the place? You don't walk in and go, I cannot believe that what an accident that all this stuff just appeared. Think about the profoundness. God created and then he left his creation unfinished. 
and we were birthed into the chaos of the garden. And he goes, now out of this chaos, draw beauty. The first thing God calls us to is to create beauty out of what he gave us. You see that at Gaylord. I don't know how many hours it took to craft what's in there. I'm sure it took a lot. And to maintain it and to keep it going. But it is a display of fighting against chaos and constantly bringing beauty. And here's the crazy thing. Go with me here. Every job you do, every expression of work is an opportunity to be an artist. Everyone. So I was preparing this this week, and on Friday I was doing laundry, and so I got everything out of the dryer and I dumped it on the floor in our bedroom, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't, some of y'all love folding clothes, right? Because it means you get away from the kids. I get it, but I don't have any little kids at the house anymore. You can lock yourself in the bedroom. I'm folding laundry. Leave me alone. You know, <laughs> that's not my case. And I thought, no, no, no. Okay, here we go. Artistry. This pile of clothes is chaos, and I am going to call it into order. I command you, I rule over you as the image of the living God to bring beauty to this place and just started folding clothes. Actually, it became kind of fun. We're artists, whether you're a parent, whether you practice law, whether you're in medicine, whether you're in business, construction, whether you cook for a living or you sing for a living or you dance for a living or you're a kid for a living. We're artists. So when God blesses us, he blesses us into artistry. Tolkien, some of you are familiar with his work. He said, we, we make in the manner in which we were made. And when Andrew Peterson talks about this, he says, to put it another way, we serve a creator with a capital C, and one of the ways in which we've been made in his image is that we also delight in creating. And he would go on to say that everyone is a creative not just people that do that in the arts. Well, something happened in chapter three of Genesis, which sin happened, and Adam and Eve, we'll talk about that later, they, they sinned against God, and in that sin against God, sin came into the world, and what sin did was it brought death, and it brought a curse over everything. And it also brought that curse over work. In chapter three, verse 17, it says, cursed is the ground because of you, through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. That sin now has come in and has taken this beautiful thing called work where I get to be an artist and has now cursed it and made it hard. And it's always a struggle. And yet, that's where Jesus steps into the story. We talk about this often, that when Jesus came, uh, the second member of the Trinity, when he came on this earth to live a perfect life, and then to go to the cross and take my sins on him, and then he rose again to newness of life so that we can rise to to newness of life, that newness of life that he has risen us to is to be spiritually alive. To be spiritually alive. And what does it mean to work when we're spiritually alive? This is in John chapter 6. <clears throat> and Jesus had fed the 5,000 and uh, had gone off and people ran after him and said, hey man, uh, we want to know more. 
And he said, you know, the only reason you're chasing me is because I fed you. And he says, you must do the work that God requires. And so they asked him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? And Jesus answered, what must we do to do the work of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That all the work that is required of us in the kingdom of God is to set our faith and face on the one who went before me and went to the cross and then rose again. That's it. That's our work. To believe in him. Because when I believe in him, something begins to happen in me. Something begins to get transformed. I rise from death to life now. My spirit was dead before I met him, and now my spirit is made alive. And something begins to change in me. Let me tell you what begins to change in me. We see it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. It's a really interesting passage because Paul is talking to the Ephesians. He goes, hey, stop stealing. (laughs) It's pretty clear, isn't it? Quit stealing. Principle number one in the church. Quit stealing. And why does he say that? He's saying because the dead you, the, the you that didn't know Jesus, stealing was okay. Because everything was about you. And it didn't matter who you hurt. All that, all that mattered is did you get your share? That's not you anymore. Now that you've been made alive, something has been awakened in you. And what has been awakened in you? He goes on to talk about it. He goes, stop stealing. Go get a job so that you have plenty to give to other people. What? (laughs) That my work now is no longer a work for me. My work now becomes a way by which I rule. And how do I rule? I rule by generosity, by seeing the needs of other people, by caring for my community, and realizing that my my role in this city through work matters. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it says something so outrageous. I wrestled with it for so long. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And if you take time to think about that, it's like everything I do is out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And when Jesus begins to set you free, he doesn't say don't do anything without ambition. He says, you've got to move ambition from the selfish place to what place? To the other place. Have you ever met anybody that is incredibly ambitious for the kingdom of God? Like they realize, man, I am a representative of God. I'm an ambassador of the kingdom of God on this planet. And my work is to create art, to create beautiful, to glorify God and to serve others by putting my faith in him. That's why in Colossians chapter three, when Paul was writing to slaves, these are slaves. He says, hey, whatever you do, whatever you do, You're a slave. And he's not condoning slavery here. He's like, I know it's a bad situation. And I know that that's the situation you're in right now. And what does he say to them? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Why? Because it's working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. He's coming back again. So my work now is not necessarily to work for you. It's to work for him, whatever I do. And some of you, you know, you have horrible bosses. Some of you are in situations that are horrible. 
Imagine being transformed from being somebody who works begrudgingly because it feels like you're working for these people that don't deserve you, to now I'm working for the Lord. To now I'm realizing that I'm bringing excellence to my labor, not for their benefit, but for the glory of the Lord and for the good of those around me. Wow, what a transformation for us to think about work. That work is an opportunity for me to display that I am the light of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. But later in Matthew, he said, you're the light of the world. And one of the ways that we bring that light is bringing excellence into the workplace. Richard Pratt again. I told you we would hear from him. The Christian faith gives us a new conception of work as the means by which God loves and cares for his world through us. Look at the places in the Bible that says that God gives every person their food. How does God do that? It's through human work. From the simplest farm girl milking the cows to the truck driver bringing produce to the market to the local grocer. God could feed us directly, but he chose to do it through work. There are three important implications of this. First, it means all work, even the most menial task, has great dignity. In our work, we are God's hands and fingers sustaining and caring for this world. Second, it means one of the main ways to please God in our work is simply to do work well. Some have called this the ministry of competence. What passenger needs, what a passenger needs from an airline pilot is not that she speaks to them about Jesus, but that she's a great, skillful pilot. Third, this means that Christians can and must have deep appreciation for the work of those who work skillfully but do not necessarily share our beliefs. We're light. We go into work to glorify our Father and to use our labor to bless others. So I don't know how I, I got into this this week, but I was reading about Paul no Newman. Y'all know who Paul Newman is? And back in, like I think it was 82 or 83, uh, he decided he was going to make salad dressing for all his friends for Christmas. So he got a bunch of empty wine bottles and he made the salad dressing and they loved it so much. They said, Paul, Paul, you need to sell it. <clears throat> and he goes, oh, you know, what do I know about salad dressing? But he decided to, and he made Paul Newman's own or Newman's own. Maybe you've heard of this company, but when he started, he goes, I, you know, I got all the money I need. I got, I got everything I ever wanted. Why don't we do this? We'll start this salad company. If it makes any money at all, we'll give it away to charity. Well, he died, I think, like in 08 or something like that. But they continue to give all the profits from this company to charity. Since then, they've given, I think it's over, a half a billion dollars to charity. So I Googled search after that. I'm like, is Paul Newman a Christian? I don't think he was. But the reason I searched for that is because that smelt so much like my father's kingdom. It smelled so much like the Jesus that I serve. It smelled so much like somebody seeing their life as more than just how much they can get in the bank, but that their work actually brings glory. Now, his understanding of glory and our understanding of glory is different, but to also serve other people. It smells like the kingdom that we're a part of, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound or smell like what we want to be a part of? From the folding clothes to parenting your children to serving food to people at the Waffle House, to being the governor. That every bit of it has nobility to it because we are noble. We are created in the image of our Father 
You kidding me? Everything I put my hands to is holy because he has made me holy. And he's saying, use it to glorify me and use it to serve other people. So one of my favorite quotes is from Picasso. He said, the meaning of life is to discover your gifts, but the purpose of life is to give it away. It's a motto that I've tried to live with where, Lord, fill my pockets and then give me the energy to empty them and then watch you fill them again. It's just amazing how when we begin to take this this attitude of he has made me an artist like himself. My father's an artist and he's given me gifts and some of you have crazy gifts. Some of you have the gift of music, some painting, some have the gift of law, some have the gift of making lots of money. Like that's a gift. Like some of you are great truck drivers, some of you are great teachers, some of you, I just, the, the gifts in this room literally are unbelievable. And the Lord says, yeah, look what I've done. Behold my glory. Now go give it away. So that's all I got to say. <clears throat> so now it's your turn. We're going to come into worship now. And what we're going to do is, you know, this series, we're repenting and revival. And what repentance is, 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 is really asking the Lord to bring us back to sanity. All these broken things that we're carrying all these broken, shattered things that are not of his kingdom. And repentance has put them down. And remember who you are. Remember who your father is. Remember what he's called you to. And revival is actually to be revived, to, to be refreshed, to be filled back up. And so we're about to put down, and we're going to ask the Lord to revive us. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to lead into a time of confession. And then the worship team is going to lead us into reviving. Ready? Father, Lord, I confess to you with my friends here that we we have made work what it was never intended to be. Sometimes we hate it and despise it and we grumble at every task that we put our hands to. We have made leisure an idol that we have worshipped and we have wanted to dedicate our lives to play and to drink and to rest. Forgive us, Father. We have lost our way. Some of us, Lord, we have asked work to give us what it cannot give us. We have worn ourselves out, chasing after the very things that will not give us life and have only found that our hands are emptier now than they were years ago. Some in this room, Lord, has turned our work into idols and we have worshiped at its altar and we have sacrificed friends and family and our own health at times. Forgive us, Father. Restore us, we pray. Now, Lord, as we come into this time of confession, would you awaken our hearts to your presence and you would speak to us, your children, made in your image. In Christ's name.